Hi, and welcome to Red Reviews, uh, number 21, or 22, sorry, with Justin Clark. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Corey. I appreciate this. This is very exciting. Um, so we're recording this on April 12th, and April 13th was when we recorded the first one a year ago. Nice. So we've been doing this a year, year now, which is really exciting. <laughs> That's um, awesome. It is really exciting. I, I, it's been... Uh, it's been the podcast project I've done the longest, and it's also the, been the one that's absolutely, without a doubt, the most gratifying. So it's been really exciting to be a part of this project and and to continue um, uh, discussing things tonight. So kind of thinking about the sort of one-year anniversary of doing this show, you know, the first episode we did was the excellent novel about climate change by Kim Stanley Robinson called The Ministry for the Future. And I thought this time around – in sort of in celebration of the one year anniversary, we go ahead and do another episode about climate change. And the more and more I read and the more and more I explore, you know, this incredibly important um, development in human life and its relationship to politics, the more it just seems uh, imperative that we do something about it. And so the two books that I'm going to be talking about tonight are really good expositions about how we got into this mess and kind of how we can get out. So the first book that we're going to, the first book is called A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. And this book is by four authors, um, Kate Aronoff, Alyssa Battistoni, Daniel Aldana Cohen, and Tia Riofrancos. Um, Hopefully I got most of that right. (laughs) So that's the first book. And this also has a foreword written by Naomi Klein, who is the author of the second book that we'll be talking about tonight, On Fire, The Burning Case for Green New Deal. Um, both of these books came out in 2019, um, okay. and I think that there's a couple of things that we'll discuss tonight in terms of the ways in which I think it's dated, uh, even by three years, and yeah. discuss ways in which I think the authors of the books make, I think, strategic miscalculations about how we fight climate change. But to sort of get started, we'll start with sort of talking about what is the Green New Deal? You know, this is something that people have talked a lot about. And what the Green New Deal is, is it's a broader policy idea um, that has been kind of in the popular imagination, especially of the American left for the last few years. Um, it's been largely championed by two members of the U.S. Congress, um, U.S. Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts and U.S. Representative from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or AOC. Right. They introduced a resolution into Congress in 2019 that basically provides a general framework for what the Green New Deal is. And essentially, it's taking um, elements from the original New Deal, um, for those who don't know, um, the New Deal was a series of policies uh, that were implemented during the 1930s under President Franklin Delano Roosevelt to stave off the worst effects of the Great Depression. The Great Depression happens after the stock market crash of 1929. Um, Herbert Hoover was in office from 29 to 33. And while he did some things to try to mitigate the uh, horrible effects of the new, of of the Great Depression, specifically extremely high unemployment, um, it just didn't work. So by you know the fall of 1932 into the winter of 1932-33, there was a quarter of the American workforce that was without a job, 
And it was the highest unemployment the country had really experienced up to that point. And, um, and so instead of sort of doing business as usual, which has been the case, I think, over the last few decades of neoliberalism, Franklin Delano Roosevelt's vision was one that was based on, you know, um, you know, expansive experimentation and getting people back to work. So he did a slew of different programs that would get people back to work. You know, so you had like the Works Progress Administration, the Civilian Conservation Corps, the National Recovery Administration or the National Recovery Act, the AAA, the Agricultural Adjustment Act, which was, which today is known as the Farm Bill. All of these institutional and, um, legislative uh, uh, proposals that were put into practice. The Green New Deal kind of takes that concept of using broad government action um, to put people back to work and to stave off the effects of economic inequality um, and really tackles the problem of climate change. Um, you know, we have known pretty much, uh, if depending on, uh, depending on your timeline, we've pretty much known since the late 1980s with yeah. the, with the, with the creation of the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, we've known that action needs to be taken to mitigate the effects of global climate change. Yeah. And the problem is, is that really for the last, you know, 35 years, very little has been done on the issue of climate change. You know, developed countries continually meet, um, you know, they met, you know, in 1988, they met in the early 90s in Madrid, they met in 2002 in Kyoto, they met in 2000, I think, nine uh, or 10 in, I think, Madrid again, like, and obviously then the Paris Accord in 2015. Um, and so, but the problem with these kinds of of, you know, broad international policies is they're not really predicated on any kind of binding, um, authority, right? Right. They're, they're what Mao would have called a paper tiger. It's, it, it doesn't really have that much, um, uh, it's, put, you know, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. It's, it's supposed to be a consensus based, uh, kind of organization, right? Where yeah. you can kind of come to agreements based on the majority of countries thinking that such and such is a good idea. <laughs> right. And largely it tackles the issue of emissions, which both the authors of A Planet to Win and Naomi Klein are very skeptical of, not because they don't think we need to have emissions targets or, or you know, drawdown of, of carbon use, but because that's not enough, that you need yeah. to do more and that the Green New Deal is the kind of framework to do that. So what would the Green New Deal do? It would do a variety of different things. Um, and many writers have speculated about what it could be. Um, obviously, the first thing would be, you know, getting serious commitments from policymakers and the private sector on reducing global and national carbon emissions, right? So the way to really do that is a variety of different policies. One would be a national workforce that would be employed, you know, high quality, high paid union jobs to weatherize homes, to essentially prepare homes to, um, to use energy better. You would also have workers who would work on uh, expanding our fleet of electric vehicles, um, specifically with public transit, because I'm of the mind that you don't really, and so are the authors, that you don't really get the solution with just having everyone transfer from right. having you know, gasoline cars to electric cars. The real problem is sort of car infrastructure itself. So we would have to do large public projects that would sort of dismantle the car dependent 
um, infrastructure that we have and replace it with a sort of public transit infrastructure. Again, that could be fueled with clean fuels. Um, we would also have to do real work in creating international agreements that would make sure that those who work in the sort of uh, mines around the globe that harvest the precious metals and elements that we need for batteries and so forth, that they are protected under international law. You know, yeah. the, the problem right now is if we switch to electric cars, we just, ex- you know, greatly expand our use of wind and solar. That's going to really demand an incredible amount of materials. And as, as it is right now, the exploitation of labor laborers in these particular industries, especially children, um, is horrific. And so that would be something that we would have to, to genuinely do. One of the phrases you'll often hear is they'll call it, you know, climate justice or the climate justice movement, right? Mm-hmm. It's not enough to just, you know, make the economy work better. We have to instill a sense of justice. So, you know, one of the ways that, you know, the Green New Deal, I think, could be expanded is something called the Red New Deal, which is the idea of, you know, genuinely, um, you know, adhering to, you know, treaties with right. native peoples and making sure that, you know, they reclaim the land that was stolen from them and that they have some form of projects on their own that can rehabilitate the land using their ancestral techniques. So that's a part of the, the New Deal, the, the Green New Deal that I think is vitally important um, because I believe that um, this idea that native wisdom is incompatible with science is absolutely absurd. And I think that yeah. they go hand in hand. Um, so those are just some of the broad strokes about what the Green New Deal is and sort of why we need to um, to fight for something like it. Yep. Yeah. I mean, we're not covering it now, but there. I think in the years since these books came out, uh, there has been uh, a books written on why net zero emissions isn't enough of, uh, uh, for the project. We actually have to go to like a decarbonization kind of, uh, model and we have to like, cause net zero says we'll be net zero in X number of years, right? Yeah. And that's, it's just not fast enough. <laughs> right. I mean, the best case scenario is limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. That's what the science tells us. We're on and track. Even that, like, yeah, yeah, <laughs> and that's good. that's by the end of the century, right? And we're pretty much on track to adding three to four degrees Celsius by the end of the next, uh, by the end of the century. Yeah, we're in a real calamitous place, and where I think both of these books, I think, falter is the their sort of political naivete. Like, I I think the bigger problem. And this goes back to the, you know, the classic debate of reform versus revolution is that, you know, they sort of, this book was written with sort of the expectation that like COVID wouldn't happen. Like they couldn't have anticipated COVID. There's discussion of infectious diseases and pandemics in these books and how they relate to climate change. But the, it's, these books were written in a pre-COVID world and that kind of changes right. everything. Yeah. The other thing too is that they didn't, there's that, you know, these books are also both predicated on the idea that a more progressive candidate within the Democratic Party 
would have won the party's nomination for president in 19, right. in 2020 and would have won the presidency. And obviously that did not happen, right? Yeah. Instead of that happening, we arguably elected one of the most conservative Democrats to the White House yeah. who, whose own policies are completely contradictory to the aim and spirit of the Green New Deal. I mean, President Biden has come out and said, you know, the science is clear. We're going to, you know, we're going <laughs> to tackle climate change. And sure, he can we say got that. Back, <laughs> no, he can say that. Like we got back into the Paris Accord, which is great, I guess, sure. on paper. Yep. But he's also on track to approve more oil drilling permits than Trump. Yeah. This is the same thing you see from California Governor Gavin Newsom, where he sort of talks a good game about, you know, we're going to tackle climate change. I'm going to be a green governor, this and that and the other, and then continually approves oil stuff, um, which I and, and that's I mean, that's Justin Trudeau, too. I mean, that's that's and right. that's the Liberal Party in Canada as well, which Naomi Klein is Canadian. So she kind of makes that point, too, yeah. is that that Trudeau's rhetoric versus the reality is a huge problem. And so yeah. where I think the, these books I think believe genuinely still believe in the idea that if like we elect the right people and they get in power and then they can pass the legislation and then things can change. Like, I don't buy that for a second. I don't think that's right. going to happen because the democratic party barely talks about climate change at all. And when they do, they've said the same thing for the last basically 10 years, 10, 15 yeah. years, which is that we believe in science. We believe in science. We care about the science. We're listening to the science, but you're not right. And so, like, the fact that you know what the science might be and then you just do the policies that basically Republicans would do, that's a form of – that's a form of climate denialism as well. Like, that's – like, because ultimately what – you know, and you got to almost – you almost have to wonder which one's worse, which is that the Republicans are evil and they're just going to do whatever they're going to do or conservatives are generally evil and they're just going to do what they're going to do. Whereas a lot of mainstream liberals will talk a good game and essentially lie to you and then do the exact same shit that conservatives And then still do evil shit. (laughs) And then still do terrible things. And it kind of makes you wonder which one's worse. I mean, at least one of them isn't lying to me. I mean, the other one kind of is, right? Um, again, that's, I'm not saying that like conservatives are good. My point is saying that the situation <laughs> yeah. is so crappy. Like the political, like the political situation is so bad that the best way to really implement a lot of what the Green New Deal is about is through a couple of things. I think local action, you know, Naomi Klein in her book really stresses the importance of localism, which I have my criticisms with, um, if you want to learn a little bit more about the limits of localism in relation to fighting climate change, I highly recommend, uh, Lee Phillips's book. Um, I think it's, I forget the title of it. It's called like, oh, uh, it's like climate. Oh man, I forget what it's called, but it's like climate apocalypse or something. And okay. it has like a crazy tagline. It's in the collapse porn addicts or something like that. Okay. But it's, but it's, but it's quite good. And he, and the book is, is probably one of the better, critiques of Naomi Klein's uh, views okay. on climate change from the left. Um, and uh, so the it's, only side that has a legitimate <laughs> criticism. Yeah. Right. The, 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 <laughs> yeah. The only side that really has a good criticism, but he sort of, he sort of challenges the limits to localism, which I would too. Um, I, you know, but at the same time, I do think local solutions are a part of this, a part of the, the larger strategy for fighting right. climate change. And the other part of it, I think is social movements. You know, building real tangible political movements that can fight for these policies and sort of force the political elite to either step aside and let us have have a shot at trying to do it or forcing them to doing it. 
because that yeah. was what the New Deal was predicated on, right? You know, Franklin and Roosevelt didn't do a lot of the New Deal out of the kindness of his heart. Right. You know, he, he, I mean, he did it. Um, you know, a little bit was that. I mean, as a patrician liberal, that's certainly a little bit of that. But the vast majority of it was that there was a very active, vibrant, and strong labor movement and a strong left political movement in this country that sort of forced Roosevelt to, 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 um, play his hand at trying to save capitalism from itself because yeah. Roosevelt thoroughly understood that, you know, with hundreds of thousands of members of the U.S. Communist Party, of hundreds of thousands of tens of thousands of members of the U.S. Socialist Party and, 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 you know, millions of workers in unions by the, by the mid 1930s, um, that the, the sort of politics of, of usual was not, you know, politics as usual were not going to work. Right. And that if I, if he didn't step in and try to address them, that a revolution would have certainly happened. And I, I mean, I think that's absolutely the case. So what, I think is required of us to, for, to, you know, implement real climate change, uh, solutions and, and to implement something like a Green New Deal is to build large, powerful social movements, build the power of labor, build the power of, of these, you know, um, political organizations and, and, and workers organizations that are independent of the government, that they, yeah. that they have their own voice and will fight for it. Um, yeah. Yep. Yep. For sure. It's, uh, before, before the pandemic, there was uh regular, uh, protests here. Like kids would walk out of school for climate, uh, every Friday. I think it was like partway through the day, they would go and they would leave school for, to bring attention or whatever, bring politicians attention to climate change. Uh, but uh, yeah, you don't yeah. see that anymore i don't know pandemic seemed to kill a lot of that i think so i think so um she talks a lot about in in on fire in the introduction she talks a lot about greta thunberg and the the school strike for climate that she sort of initiated a few years ago and i think greta is like going the trajectory that most people on the political left do which is that they sort of recognize like overall they get first they're kind of like maybe i can get these people to listen right right and then at some point she realized like, oh, wait, they're just playing language games. One of the, I think the interesting points that, that she brings, that Klein brings up in, in the book about Greta Thunberg is that because she's neurodivergent, right? That she has autism or she's autistic, doesn't have autism. Right. You know, that, she, that the Greta Thunberg is, is neurodivergent, that she doesn't really understand, not understand, but she doesn't really have time or patience for language games, which is what <laughs> most politicians do. It's just yeah. language games um, where, you know, whoever can say the right words in the right sequence and she can kind of see through that shit. Yeah. And just watching her become more and more radicalized as she sees that all these politicians are going to do is language games. And yeah. is, I think it just goes to the, it just goes to the heart of the fact that like she has a deep moral conscience that, um, and an, and an inability to like, compartmentalize how truly awful climate change is. I mean, most of us do that throughout of our lives, our daily yeah. lives, because we can't, we cannot fathom just truly how fucked the system is. Like, like we are in a real dire situation where you have asked, you have ocean acidification. The great barrier reef is dying off. You're seeing, you know, we're living through the sixth mass extinction where species are just, you know, f dropping off at record rates. You know, th we have 
Um, you know, we have massive amounts of pollution, both air and whatever. There was a recent article that came out about how microplastics were found in human blood for the first time. Yep. So it's like things are truly fucking awful. And the problem is, is that for most of us to avoid not running out in front of traffic, we sort of have to compartmentalize yeah, we'll it. Put it in a box, set it over there. Set it over there and move on, right? But, but what, yeah. what Klein writes about in relation to Greta Thunberg is that she can't do that. Like Greta right. can't do that. Because it's it's everything that she thinks about. And it just overwhelms her, right? And that's what it should do. Like, learning about this shit should overwhelm people. Yeah. It should scare the shit out of people. It should get people to understand just how truly bad it is. And and to make... and the, But the problem is, is that, like, Ed Klein and the other book does a great job of saying this. Like, there's no amount of individual decisions that you can do... Right. ...that will ever change, like you know, the system, the system is, you know, your, your carbon footprint, which even the concept of a carbon footprint itself is bullshit. I mean, it was, it, it was brought up. It was designed by the fucking oil industry, very much the way that the recycling movement and, and the sort of the plastics, the sort of, you know, don't litter and all that kind of stuff. Like that was perpetuated by the, by the plastics in, industry in this country, in the United States. Yeah, that's right. And so like, you know, it is, is that we are, we're just living at a moment where we can no longer do it as we're doing it. And there has to be major changes and those structural changes have to be done in that with a mind towards justice and equity. Yeah. So like, this is something that both books really hit on is that the green new deal or something like it, it is the once in a generation opportunity to do certain things that we've always wanted to do, whether it's, you know, creating, you know, you know, uh, green energy efficient, affordable housing, you know, doing, you know, really getting to the heart of discrimination because discrimination is a huge part and racism is a huge part of the climate change discussion. Yeah. Um, people don't think it would be, but it is in the sense that what does the right have on offer in relation to climate change? It's either denial which is what a lot of the mainstream right in America is about yeah. or the radical right, which is, which is basically eco-fascism. Right. Yeah. And with eco-fascism, what it is, is it's this obsession with, you know, well, the real problem is uh, the population. Mm -hmm. And if we can get mm -hmm. the population under control, there's just too many people. Right. And that the problem is not, the systems of economic development that we have, but rather just people in general. And the way to fight that is to basically see, like put a hierarchy of who should be saved and who shouldn't be, yep. who counts in the post sort of climate apocalypse world and who doesn't. And she talks about in the book, in the introduction, Klein talks about how there were some students in New Zealand who were organizing a, student strike for climate and they okay. went out and they did everything and they had the regular speakers. And then about halfway through the event, police officers show up and say, Hey guys, you need to stop this now. And the reason the cops stopped them was not because, you know, they were trying to like stop the rally, although they, that could have been a part of it. It's not the, the usual cops. It's not reason. the usual <laughs> cops suck reason, but actually what had gone on was that that was when the, uh, I think it's called the Christchurch shooting, which happened oh, okay. Um, when a radical 
eco-fascist went into a mosque and killed a bunch of people. And if you read like his manifesto and a lot of the manifestos of these sort of mass shooters, um, Anders Breivik was a part of this too. The guy who, uh, from Norway who killed a bunch of people. Um, if you read what their manifestos say, it clearly has eco-fascist tones where they're basically saying that like, you know, we need to save the world for the white race and that, you know, we need to have a hierarchy of races that matter and, and that, you know, the climate cannot, um, you know, the climate cannot handle all these extra births in Africa and all this kind of shit. Right. And so that's what the right has on offer, which is that either climate change isn't a thing or it is a thing and we don't care. And the only solution will be a carceral one or a, or a martial one where we're going to have more militarized borders, more militarized communities more violent tactics being carried out by police officers in the military, more imperialism, more violence abroad as a way of hoarding resources and wealth, right? It's just going to reinforce all of the violent patterns of our global system that already exist. So, you know, kind of with that in mind, I think it's very, it's very important for us to challenge these narratives of eco-fascism and specifically the population one. I mean, I, I, I probably complained to you about this before, but I'm going to say it, you know, here, which is that, you know, the free thought movement still talks about the overpopulation thing. Right. They yeah. still do it. And the secular movement needs to drop that shit. Yeah. Because first off, it's not based in any sound science whatsoever. And two, it's predicated on, quite frankly, uh, the idea that, okay, well, if overpopulation is a problem, where do you think all that overpopulation is coming from? And invariably, yeah. it's countries that are black and brown, and that's it's the ones they're worried about. Deeply Even tied to the eugenics. <laughs> it's deeply tied to eugenics, right? Which the secular movement has always had a problem with. And we talked yeah. about that with Angela Davis's book and Margaret Sanger, right? Yeah. So, like, the, the, you know, that the secular movement has always had a problem with eugenics, with the overpopulation canard, with sort of Malthusianism. And yep. that we have to actively fight this because you'll see people who, who even consider themselves liberals saying this kind of stuff. And we have to challenge it at every turn. I mean, this was the big controversy with Michael Moore, the Michael Moore produced film, his like longtime collaborator directed that Planet of the Humans movie that came out, I think, a year or two ago that came out during the pandemic. And it was about climate change. And ultimately, that movie's whole message is there is nothing we can do. And ultimately, it's a crisis of there's just too many fucking people. And it's a, you know, and it's like, well, no, like, that's not the problem. Because if you look at the United States, like the United States is only 340 million people. The earth is, has 7.5 billion people on it, right? Or almost 8 billion people. But yet this country accounts for the vast majority of the carbon emissions. Western Europe, smaller populations than Africa, right? Or Europe in general. Again, Larger climate, larger carbon emissions. The only country that is a developing country that has a large enough population, which also has a large carbon footprint, well, there's two, is India and China. And even then, their climate emissions pale in comparison to the historic carbon emissions of, you know, Europe and the United States. So, you know, the issue is not a lot of people. The issue is the system of capitalism and imperialism which is predicated on stealing, hoarding wealth and resources from these countries and essentially treating the earth as if it's a trash can. Yeah. You know, 
And a lot of it comes from, you know, some more like pernicious interpretations of Christianity, you know, because in Christianity, you have like two different versions of thinking about the environment. The one is just sort of, fuck it, the earth's here for you to exploit, for you to exploit. And then there's the idea of stewardship that's also in the Bible. So again, you know, so the evangelical right, they don't really care about climate change, right? And, and so, you know, long story short, like, I think it's important for us to reckon with these bad ideas of overpopulation and blaming human nature and this kind of shit. Like, no, first off, those answers don't get us anywhere. It's right. a sort of nihilism. Because here's the thing, wouldn't you rather try to fix this system and fail than just do nothing at all? Like, you know, and just say, fuck it. Cause like, that's kind of the message of some of the, the sort of, you know, the, the, some of the, the sort of liberal left, the sort of, you know, especially in that movie, Planet of the Humans. So we have to come up with a more optimistic vision. And that's kind of what is in both of these books. And, and I think what we should do as, as a broader left is come up with a more optimistic vision, which is that, you know, climate change can be, uh, staved off. We can, we can try to do the best we can. You know, even if we get to, if, even if we can only get to two degrees warming instead of four. Right. Yes, that would be bad. And there will be people who will suffer, but there will be far less suffering with two degrees of warming than three or four degrees of warming. Yeah. And, you know, so, and, and ideally we get to the 1.5. And again, it's about capitalism. So one of the things that the, the, the Planet to Win book talks about is, one of the first things on a policy level the United States could do is end fossil fuel subsidies. Yep. You know, the, 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 the oil and gas industry is only profitable by virtue of the fact that it essentially holds its customer base hostage and that the, the government pretty much bought, buys the system, you know, that, the, that they buy the government and the politicians who write the policy for them. So if you ended these fossil fuel subsidies, that would be a really great start. Yeah. The second thing you could do, and one thing that we're seeing constantly expand, is the climate divestment movement. So we've been seeing the BDS movement in regards to Israel, but there's also been a sort of BDS movement in regards to climate, you know, to the worst polluters. Okay. So you've seen major financial trusts um, divest from fossil fuel uh, stocks or fossil fuel investments. The one that's probably the most striking when people learn it is the Rockefeller Foundation. Um, which, you know, if you know the history of the United States, you know who John Rockefeller is. He made all of his money with oil, right? Yeah. So, you know, that wealth now that that and those investments are being divested from the, the fossil fuel industry. Because I'm of the mind that if you, if you really divested the, you know, major investments from oil and gas, and fossil fuels, and you ended the fuel subsidies there, and and you instead of giving those subsidies to the oil and gas companies, you invested those in greener technologies like wind and solar, hydroelectric, geothermal, and so on. That um, that the these oil and gas companies they wouldn't collapse overnight, but they would collapse in a number of years. The coal yeah. industry is already on on track to collapse anyway in the yeah. United States, and so that's I think the big thing is because. In order for us to really fight climate change, we have to keep this shit in the ground. There's no trying to make this cleaner. There's yeah. no like, and, and the problem is, is that, that they, there are others like scientific solutions where they're thinking, well, what if we put like these sort of like, you know, microcarbons in the atmosphere so that we can deflect more light from the sun? And it's like, guys, you have no idea how much that could fuck up the environment even more. Yeah. 
That's right. Naomi Klein has a chapter about that in her book that like if you do these kind of like you know, uh, sun deflecting technologies that are not scientifically proven. They're right. very unreliable. We do not know if they will work. And if we institute them large scale, they can make the whole situation very work, much, much worse. Yeah. So, you know, and when we, what we could do in terms of like, oh, we could develop all of these like interesting, like carbon, you know, uh, sequestering technologies, just plant fucking trees. Like right. the answer is simple. It's right there. Plant fucking trees. And leave trees in the ground where they are. Like, leave the Amazon forest alone. But the problem is, again, it's the economic system. This isn't about human nature. This isn't about too many people on the planet. Because we, we, as a, as a people, like we, this global economy produces way more than every person on earth could use. Yeah. It's not about, it's, we live in a system of abundance. And the problem with why it's the way it is, is because that abundance is unevenly distributed. And so, you know, one statistic that I remember, and I think this is from Naomi Klein's book, is that when a coal power plant runs for an hour, it has the same carbon footprint that an individual human being living in the industrialized world would make in the in 28 years. So when you know that, you kind of recognize that, like, again, this idea of individualism, like, do your part, this kind of stuff doesn't help. No. And and as we've discussed in previous episodes regarding neoliberalism and sort of disaster capitalism, as Naomi Klein calls it, um, we've we've de- we've sort of starved the government of resources and expertise to fight collective problems with collective solutions. Yeah. You know, climate change is like the ultimate collective problem, and we need a collective solution to solve it. You know, just a, pe- a group of individuals trying to solve it will do absolutely nothing, and so we have to actually make. And adv- we have to advocate for large-scale collective efforts to do this. Yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I guess it's hard to solve any problem on a personal responsibility level when uh, you have so many systems working against that. <clears throat> I know in uh, the UK, they're currently have they have some people that are uh, doing protests right now that are talking about. Uh, stop oil now. And they mean like no new drilling, no new oil coming out of the ground. And apparently they said like what stores we currently have would last uh, eight years or maybe in the UK, that's what it is. <clears throat> I'm sure it's it's different in various places, but. Right. Well, and that's the problem with the United States. I mean, if people want to know why like during the pandemic, why like gasoline prices went through the floor, it's because, you know, domestic oil production in the United States is at, is at record highs. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of that started under Obama, which, you know, he, there's that infamous video of him saying, you know, I did that. That was me. Mm-hmm. As if he was like proud of it that you decided instead of like really going forward towards, you know, a greener future and implementing policies that would have right. staved off the worst effects of climate change, you decided to open up more and more of the country to oil exploration. Yeah. What's interesting about Obama. And I think this is in the Klein book. When Obama became president, one of the first things that they did was they approved the the Deepwater Horizon oil rig mm-hmm. in the Gulf. And basically, they said, like, there's no way that this thing would blow. Like, the risks are extremely minimal. They essentially bought what the BP executive said to them because BP, British Petroleum, owned the Deepwater yeah. Horizon rig. And, you know, it was literally within months of the approval of that. 
that we had the Deepwater Horizon oil spill in 2010. You know, you know, and, and not only did they say an accident wouldn't happen, but even if an accident did happen, we would be able to contain it fairly quickly with the technology that we've developed. Well, that was not true at all. I think it took them like two months to finally cap, um, the, the, the oil well that had been gushing, you know, crude oil into the Gulf of Mexico for weeks. Yeah. And the, and the, and, and, you know, you know, fishers, you know, you know, fishermen down there will tell you that their fishing stock has never been the same. Yeah. You see, you know, many fish with horrible developmental problems, um, abnormal development, abnormal organs, abnormal sexual organs, abnormal f- physiology, like, like the, the whole ecology of that whole area has been really screwed up. And people think, yeah. well, that was 12 years ago, but it's like 12 years ago, is nothing when you have, yeah. you know, millions upon millions of barrels of crude oil being, you know, basically wasted into the, the Gulf of Mexico. So again, ecological time, that's nothing. <laughs> in ecological time, it means absolutely nothing, right? And so again, it's about policymakers making the choice of the, and, and, and this is the binary that you'll often hear is it's like, well, if we do the Green New Deal, it's going to cost jobs. No, it's not. Like, if anything, it's going to create new jobs. Because yeah. one of the things that uh, that FDR wanted to do to expand his idea of the New Deal was something that he called um, the Economic Bill of Rights. Um, and one of them was every American is guaranteed a right to a job. And, you know, and so that was what the Green New Deal would be all about is getting people back to work who want to work. Yeah. You know, and that doesn't just mean like, you know, people who wear hard hats who are like installing solar panels or sequestering oil in the ground. Like that also means the care economy, which right. is relatively low carbon. Right. So child care workers, teachers, um, you know, medical professionals, all of those people are a part of that Green New Deal future where they are a part of making sure that people's needs are met while simultaneously lowering our greenhouse gas emissions. You know, and also we, I think we do genuinely have to have a discussion about the culture of consumption in the West. You know, this is something that, you know, Jimmy Carter got shit for when he was president in 1979. He gave something he called the Malays speech. Uh, it's known to history as the Malays speech. And he talked about how the United States has a problem with consumption. They were so obsessed with things and we're not obsessed enough with people. And caring about people. And and the thing was, was that Jimmy Carter got like trashed for this. And then Reagan won the election in 1980. But but Carter, you know, and was <laughs> Turns right. out he was actually right. Yeah. He was right. Like, <laughs> if you if you listen to that speech, it's very much a harbinger of things to come. One interesting little note is uh, one of the advisors who helped Jimmy Carter write that speech was Christopher Lash, who we did a, a book review yep. on uh, last year with The Minimal Self. Um, Lash helped him with that. And so I think it's very important that we have that question, which is that do we need all of this constant consumption? Because our economy is built on that. Yeah. You know, our economy is not built on suiting and meeting people's needs. Our economy is built on us constantly buying shit because that was the trade-off that the neoliberal planners of the world order that we live under now basically took in the late 1970s and early 1980s. They knew yeah. That having an economy built on manufacturing of consumer durables was going out, but the growth that came with having an economy like that was also going out. So what do we do? We have to build 
our economy on cheap consumption based on easy credit, which is yeah. exactly what we live in now. Yeah. And so you see high amounts of personal debt and you also just see tons of shit in fucking landfills. You clothing that yep. ends up in landfills. A lot of people think that if they take their clothes to Goodwill and get rid of them, that every piece of article of clothing, every article of clothing that they put in, they send to Goodwill ends up on person. The vast majority of it doesn't. Yeah. Yeah. You know, a huge amount of what Goodwill takes in ends up in landfills. So we need to develop better ways of doing mutual aid so that we can bypass yeah. the sort of, you know, extractive consumerist model. And one of the ways we do that is just giving people clothes directly, yep. not taking them to Goodwill, not taking them to a charity shop and just giving them directly. You know, one of the things that we do with the Party for Socialism and, and Liberation, the political party I'm a part of and here in, in Indianapolis is we have something called Hope Packages where okay. we go out and we give kits to folks in our communities, you know, we, toiletries, you know, uh, hygiene products and so on and so forth. But the other thing we're doing is we're giving out clothes. You know, we give out clothes to folks for free. We don't, we don't ask anything of them. We just give it to them. There's yeah. so much of that, right? Think about how much food a, a restaurant wastes every day. And we, but, and you know, and so one, one weekend we were doing a Hope Packages distribution. My comrade said to me, you know, I got all of these like pastry items from a, a shop down the street and they were just going to throw them out because they were basically like, we don't really have a process for giving these out. Right. Yeah. Again, a lot of places don't, right? Yeah, they don't, right? We think of Panera like throwing giant bags of bagels out in the dumpster, right? Right. Is This is the problem, right? You know, the average American consumer wastes about 40% of the groceries that they buy every year. And so it, the, it's the crisis of consumption. We have a, a, a economic system predicated on profit rather than meeting human needs. Yeah. And if we build a socialist system that meets people's needs without the profit motive that is predicated on having a more responsible balance with the earth, yeah. we will have a much better system and we can stave off the worst effects of climate change yeah. because that's, it ultimately comes down to changing consumption habits, you know, and that is where I do think people can, you know, is it's a drop in the bucket, but I think it's important that if enough people did it, it could really cause a seismic shift, you know, some kind of organization where I'm not going to eat meat on Fridays or right. I'm not going to eat red meat anymore at all. I'm only going to eat lean meat or I'm only going to eat meat on certain days or I'm only going to drive my car certain days, Yeah, you know, yeah. or, you know, working remote, I think is one of the ways in which, um, you know, we can use For less sure. fossil fuels yeah. is having people work at home. Right. And, and that's predicated on, you know, uh, also making sure that um, whatever, our electricity is being generated for homes where people are doing remote working um, is done with clean technologies. The technologies are there. Like the you know, solar and wind are ready to rock. We just need to develop better ways of one extraction of the elements that go into those components, creating a more fair and equitable labor system for that. And two, thinking seriously through the recycling system, because at this particular point, uh, batteries for electric vehicles and batteries for electric, um, you know, energy, uh, creation. We don't really have a policy for that yet. And that's going to be something that we have to do. The other discussion that we're going to have to have is the possibility. Um, and, and Naomi Klein is more critical of this. And I think for good reason of nuclear energy, 
Yeah. Um, I think that's a very hot debate about whether or not nuclear energy is going to be a component of our clean future. I've read some people on the left who think it will be, people like Lee Phillips, and I've read other people on the left like Karen, uh, like Christian Parenti and Naomi Klein who say no. And the more and more I read about solar panels, the more and more I read about wind turbines, the more and more I'm convinced that the anti-nuclear energy side is right. Yeah, I, I tend to think that uh, I, I'm not an anti-nuclear person, but I don't, I. I don't think that it's fast enough at this point. Like it's already too late in order to make the progress we need to make. We need to do faster changes and building mm-hmm. and, and uh, making sure it's done right. Building these nuclear reactors correctly. Yeah. Uh, it's just too slow. And the, I agree with you. And the reason that it's too slow is because a lot of these, these plans are predicated on profit. And, you know, I yeah, mean, there are really right. only a few countries where, you know, nuclear power could really be a substantial thing. One is the United States. Um, China. Um, China is yep. definitely expanding its nuclear power fleet. Um, and as long as those industries, I think, are predicated on development rather than profit, they might work. Mm-hmm. But again, the problem with nuclear energy is that we're still in the phase of fission, right? Right. All nuclear technologies that are used around the world are fission technologies. If you really want to like supercharge, you know, you know, pun intended, to really supercharge the the new energy revolution, we have to develop nuclear fusion. That's the future, right? If nuclear right. is going to be an option, it's going to have to be with fusion, which will be one, it will take less material to do. It'll be yep. infinitely s- safer and it would be infinitely more efficient. The amount of energy we would be able to get through fusion would truly be the kind of, of radical altering, uh, life altering technology that like, we could go to stars with like that's right. nuclear fusion is a part of that. Um, so that's the way to do that. But, but right now the way that nuclear power plants are, I, I don't see that being the case. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that the United States has not built any new nuclear power plants since the 1970s. So that- every nuclear <laughs> power plant that we have in the United States is 50, 60, sometimes 70 years old. Yeah. You know, the nuclear power and fleet, uh, fleet in France is like 40 years old because they started doing it in the early 1980s. The only place in the world that's really building to scale new nuclear power plants is China. And, you know, and while there have been, I think, some very positive developments with some of that, um, in, in terms of, of really, you know, supercharging this, this different type of energy source, I don't know if it's the be all end all solution. So I'm not anti nuclear energy. Um, but I think that at this particular moment, it may not be the best option. Yeah. Um, so, yep. yeah, I, uh, I, in Saskatchewan, actually, they're discussing, uh, I guess it's called small modular reactors and, uh, supposedly they can be built safely quicker than, uh, than the bigger uh, facilities, but you have to do obviously more of them because they're smaller, but, uh, we're also currently exploring like uh, uh, our local government is just doing like battery storage of power so that we can have more solar and uh, see how the batteries hold it up. But yeah, because that's going to be the real issue, right? Because what what, you know, fossil fuels have going for them versus alternative energies is that fossil fuels are not intermittent, yeah. right? Yeah. Fossil fuels, you can use them anytime, any place, anywhere. Yeah. Very reliable. Wind and solar don't have that. They're in, inter- they are intermittent. 
Sometimes the sun doesn't shine. Sometimes the wind doesn't blow, right? Yeah. And so that's going to be, I think, the challenge is to doing more, um, you know, experimentation with batteries and battery technology to figure out what we can do. Because if you want to see like alternative energies being implemented in the neoliberal model and failing, just look no, no further than Germany. Right. Because Germany did this. You know, they did implement, you know, broader wind and solar as a part of their energy um, plan. And ultimately, it was a huge failure. Their energy costs went up and they ended up having to import coal, um, not only build <laughs> coal-fired power plants, but importing coal and natural gas from other places, particularly Russia. Yeah. So, you know, Der Spiegel, the, the, the really great German investigative magazine, did a, a really amazing piece on this a couple of years ago about the sort of failures of the alternative energy revolution within Germany under the sort of uh, – under Angela Merkel – and the sort of neoliberal model. Because again, it's predicated on making money. It's not predicated yeah. Yeah. on really changing the dynamics of the system. It's predicated on profit. And so that's why it failed. It failed because they weren't willing to scale to the extent to which the crisis needed it. And they weren't willing to make you know larger policy changes, whether it was increasing public housing. And having better public housing with better insulation and better resources, yep. more energy efficient machines, um, and then ultimately finding ways to curtail consumption. It's, it's, you know, this is the problem. But, the, but and again, you know, uh, Naomi Klein writes about this in On Fire. She talks about how the neoliberal model of sort of, you know, taking, making things more expensive for people, which is what the whole model is predicated on carbon taxes and, yep. and all of this. Well, we saw the failures of that in France with the Yellow Vest movement, right? Right. It was this huge working class movement that rose up against the increase in the fuel tax under Emmanuel Macron's government, which was supposed to be used to invest in clean technologies and 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 go towards climate change and fighting right. climate change. But it ended up backfiring because the working because any climate policy that leaves the working class out of it and leaves notions of equity and justice out of it is going to fail and it's going to backlash and it's just going to piss off the working class, Yeah, yeah. which just puts them in the hands of the right. Yeah, you know? that's right. Yeah. So it, it's, if you, if you, this is why, like, I keep trying to tell people like the neoliberal model is dying and, and anybody who wants to keep buying into the fact that, that they can work is absurd. You know, I really feel like Joe Biden will be the last neoliberal president. He'll oh, be the last one. And every president that will come after him will be different and and probably worse. I mean, you know, but because I don't expect to see the Democratic Party pull their heads out of their asses anytime soon. No. So, you know, that's the thing is it's like, and that's the scary thing, right? Because these 2022 midterms this year, I'm both like. I'm both like laughing in the sense that like Democrats are just so demonstrably shit as a political party, but I'm yeah. also like fucking terrified because then that means that for, you know, two to four to six to eight years, Republicans are going to have control of everything. Yeah. And, and that's, that's right. and this is, we are in a crucial decade. If we do nothing until 2030, we're fucked. Like we are fucked. So it, it this is a crucial time. And if we can't seem to get it together now, then it's going to be much, much worse in the future. Yeah, I, uh, while you were talking about, I was thinking like, uh, a lot of people, like, I'm not, I'm obviously, I, I'm a, not a government fan, but, uh, 
<laughs> the uh, the nationalization, or in uh, Saskatchewan, we have what we call crown corporations. So our power company is a provincial-run power company. So it gives them more leeway to uh, to kind of practice out these batteries and like they're installing like uh, uh, EV state charging stations throughout the province. There's stuff that like they can do that uh, these other places where it's all privatized industry and it's got more of that profit motive, they can't do that. So it, it's... Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good point. And one of the things that I think both books bring up is that the sort of problems with nationalization. Because sometimes mm-hmm. nationalization can follow the same logic as markets. Yeah, it tends um, to. It does. And it tends you. to. It, it pretty much tends to. And especially if you look at, you know, especially in Latin America with the sort of Bolivarian revolution, if you look at the, the way that the oil industry is in Venezuela, if you look at the way that nationalized industries are in like places like Bolivia, like, am I glad that the government has this control and is using it to improve the lives of people in those countries? Yes, I think that's a good thing. However, it's predicated on the demand of the of the fossil fuels. It's predicated yeah. on steel extraction, right? Yeah. So, you know, a real climate justice movement is one that has to reckon with the fact that these that nationalization is generally a good step in the right direction. I certainly favor it. I think public utilities should truly be public. They should be either, you know, owned publicly or nationalized in some form. Yeah. And and I think the oil companies should be nationalized too. Like in the United States, you know, if we if we nationalize the oil companies and then use the profits from those companies to really invest in clean technologies and use that as a transitional form, right? Yeah. Because that's gonna be the that's gonna be really the goal. Because a lot of the nationalization of oil around the world doesn't ever get towards the transitional part yet. But the United States could, because we have the sort of institutional wealth and knowledge to do that uh, in a larger way because we're a country that's been the beneficiary of imperialism rather than being the the um, the sort of right. the the uh, uh, the the on the other end of it right the the person who's being uh, abused by imperialism so yeah um, yeah so like I think that's so that is a discussion that's in both books and I think it's one that's worthwhile is, is nationalization but it cannot be that can, it cannot just be nationalization in and of itself it has to be tied with legitimate policy that uh, leads towards climate justice and, and and climate equity well we're coming up on our uh, uh, close to our time what are we okay. covering next time yeah so next time. We will be covering, uh, we're going to be two, we're going to be doing two episodes back to back on the theoretical works of anarchist, uh, theoretician Peter Kropotkin. Um, cool. and the first one we're going to be doing is mutual aid, a factor of evolution. Nice. And then the next time after that, we'll, we'll be doing his classic political work, the conquest of bread. So those we're, are going to be uh, the two that will be, yeah. We're currently reading conquest of bread in my local anarchist group. That's, uh, Oh, great. Great, yeah, great, it's a great, lot of great. Fun. And then after that, um, we will be doing um, the, what's it called? Yeah. The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Weinberg. That's Wimbrough. a great so, book. Yeah. So we're going to be really into the anarchist stuff for a few weeks, which I think is great. Um, that's awesome. And then after that, I think we'll start getting back into a little bit of Marxist theory. Um, and uh, for the, the person who uh, was saying about the Trotsky stuff – um, I don't have like a hard date for that, like off the top of my head, but that's going to happen later this year. We will be doing 
um, the permanent revolution in results and prospects. So that's coming down the pike. Um, but we've got all kinds of, of things, um, you know, to, uh, to, to talk about. Awesome. So I guess the only thing left is where can people find you? So you can find all of my work at um, justinclark.org. That's my website. Um, you can see all the episodes of the podcast there. Um, I just updated the website with episode 21, Revolutionary Education with Nino Brown. Definitely check out that conversation if you haven't already. Um, and then uh, I am working on um, a new article for the Truth Seeker magazine, which will come out later in the in May or June. Um, and that's going to be about – um, a anarchist feminist named Volterine de Clary and her thoughts and, and her ideas about the American revolutionary leader, Thomas Paine. Cool. Um, so that's going to be coming down the pike. Um, and then, yeah. So yeah, justinclark.org. You can follow me on Instagram at justinclarkph. And then you can also follow me on TikTok um, at justinclarkph. Cool. I'm starting a new series on TikTok about books um, that are sort of the intersection of technology, politics, commerce, and culture. Um, so definitely check those out. Awesome. Well, thank you very much, Justin. Thank you. That's all, folks. Thanks for watching or listening. Remember to share this show with your friends or on the social media site that you use the most. Thank you to everyone who supports this show on Patreon. It's really appreciated, and it helps me spend more time on this and my other projects. If you want to contribute, you can do that at patreon.com slash skeptical leftist, or you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash skeptical lefty. If you can't contribute financially, then a five-star rating or a and a review on the podcast app of your choice or on one of the podcast review sites like Podchaser or ratemypodcast.com would be great. If you want to find more from me, make sure to check out the show notes or check out my link tree. That's linktr.ee slash skeptical court. You can find all my social media stuff there, as well as links to my other show, From Many People's Strength, which is a podcast about Saskatchewan politics, and a project I'm involved in with my friend Damien Marie at Hope that's called Atheist, Humanist, Leftist, Revolutionaries. My Twitter is at Skeptical Lefty, and my Facebook page is The Mind of a Skeptical Leftist. You can email me at mindofaskepticalleftist at gmail.com. And if you want to be a guest on the show or know someone I should reach out to, then feel free to let me know. You can book interviews in my available time slots on my Calendly, which is also found in my link tree. Thanks so much for listening, and let's try to make sure we're applying critical thinking and reasoned skepticism when we're attacking the system. If we get caught up in bad thinking, we can derail ourselves. <laughs>